young people from a number of places. I think, who do we have here? Maybe we can ask you to stand up. If you're from uh, Huntington Beach, can you stand up? Young people from the church in Hennepin. Praise the Lord. Amen. Welcome. Amen. And then, uh, Santa Ana. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, these are our neighbors just next door. Welcome Amen. to our humble abode. And then we have who? Fullerton. How about Fullerton? And then uh, San Juan Capistrano. Amen. Amen. Wow, I didn't know that many from San Juan Capistrano. And then uh, Irvine. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good to have a time together like this. In Orange. Oh, yeah, Orange. Well, it's really good for the young people to come together. And to have a time like this, it's quite joyful and uh, quite enjoyable. Tonight I'd like to start by telling you a little story. It's a big story, actually. And it's over 70 years old. This happened during World War II in uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. During that time that the Nazis had occupied Europe, they began to round up all of the Jews that lived in that area, and they confined them to certain sections of various cities that became known as ghettos. And the Jews were restricted to live in those areas. Every time the Nazis did something to persecute them and take away their freedoms, they became more and more concerned. The persecution intensified and intensified until it reached a, uh, a peak. As you have studied this in school, I'm sure you know this. They began to load the Jews onto these train cars. They were cattle cars. In a small train car, they would put over 100 of these Jews. And then they trained them out to a camp called Birkenau next to Auschwitz in the south of Poland. And then when they got off the train, they faced a doctor, a Nazi doctor, and he would look over every one of them, one by one. If they looked strong and healthy, he would send them over here. If they looked older, like me, or weaker, they would send them over here. If they were women, most of them went to the weaker side. If they were young, they went to the stronger side. The weaker side were taken nearly immediately to the gas chambers. 
they thought they were going to be cared for, before they loaded them on those cars, those train cars, they were told by the Nazis that we have a place for you, a special place where you can be with your people, you can worship God according to your way, you can have more freedom. And these Jews with hope, hope of finally being free from the persecution of the Nazis, willingly boarded those trains, not knowing that they were headed to be killed. The ones who got off the train and were in this category, the small ones, if you were little, like eight or nine or ten years old, you right away, you got put on the weaker side. And then they, they took them off, they put them in this gas chamber. Uh, having been to Poland many times, I visited Auschwitz a, a few times, and I went through and I saw I've been inside that gas chamber. And it looked like a shower. It looked like a big corporate shower. They made everyone take off their clothes. They were humiliated. And then they were packed into this room. And instead of turning on the water, those were just fixtures with no water pipes. It was just made to look like a shower. Instead, they dropped those gas canisters into the vents, and within minutes, they all were dead. But the ones who lived, the ones who were set aside to survive, they were sentenced to hard labor. They worked from early morning till late at night. They lived in buildings that resemble a barn with no heating. There was four people on one bed, and other people laying on the floor. If you had to get up in the night to use the bathroom, there would be no spot for you when you came back because others would take your spot on the bed. It was freezing cold. In the south of Poland, it gets very, very cold. Many of them became very sick. They got dysentery, which is a kind of diarrhea. They became very ill, and many of them died within the first 100 days. They fed them about 800 calories of food every day, and they were doing hard labor. I wondered, as I walked through that, that place, walking where they walked, seeing where they lived, I wondered what in the world would possess these people to get on those train cars and ride to certain destruction. I saw the hair. They cut off their hair. They used their hair to make carpet lining. Can you believe that? Those rich Nazis standing on the carpet, the lining was made from the human hair of those people. One display, we went there, and it was all their suitcases. Suitcases with their names painted on it. And you can see them piled high, just like a, like a room as tall as this, and this display of a mountain of suitcases. 
all with their names. And you know what? Those suitcases represented, it represented their future, their hopes, their dreams, their valuables, their wealth. That's all they could take was a suitcase. Suppose all you can take is a suitcase. What would you put in it? You have to think about it. What am I going to take? And they loaded up all their precious belongings, as much as they could carry, and they got on the train. Weeping, standing there, watching and looking at these displays and the horror of the Holocaust. I wondered if only, if only I could have been there. It's kind of foolish to think like that, but you think, if only I could have been there and I could have told them, don't get on the train. Don't get on the train. Please, don't get on the train. They're lying to you. They're lying to you. You think there's future. You think there's a hope. You think there's something at the end of that train for you. But there's nothing there. There's certain death. Well, behind this evil kind of system that was set on annihilating the, not the, uh, the Jewish race, was Satan. Satan was trying to prevent God from fulfilling his purpose so that he could come back and end the age. If the Nazis could win the war and they could annihilate all the Jews, then there would be no possibility of the nation of Israel ever being restored, nor could there ever be the possibility of a temple being rebuilt and of the Lord to come back. It was a real strategy. It was a demonic, satanic, evil attempt by the evil one to prevent the age from ending. 1948, because of the sympathy of the international community, the United Nations partitioned off a piece of property in the middle of Palestine, in the Holy Land, and gave it to Israel. Six million Jews died there. Hundreds of thousands. The smoke went up and filled the sky every day. I saw the furnace where they burned the bodies. Hard to imagine. A horrific, horrible plot to stop God from fulfilling his purpose. Well, you might say that this is a real scourge on the human history, the Nazis and what they did, and absolutely. But I'd like to tell you tonight, and this is what I came to fellowship with you, is that there is another plot that is right now in play. And this plot is to destroy humanity. It's again an attack by the evil one to prevent God from fulfilling his purpose, building up the temple of the church that he has to have before the Lord can come back. And now I'm standing in front of the train car. And I'm begging you not to get on. 
there's a course of the age today. There's a current and a tide. And it looks hopeful. It looks like there might be a future to take the way of the world. It seems attractive. It seems hopeful. But I'm here to tell you, if we take the course of this age, there is nothing, no positive destiny waiting for us. It's not like they say. The only positive destiny in this universe is to be in the church life. Really. Satan is cruel. He's evil. And he's a liar. So tonight, I prepared a little outline. This outline is talking about... <coughs> The, human, the young people needing the humanity of Jesus for the church life. Amen. Tonight what we want to talk about is not spirituality. It's not divinity. I'd like to talk to you about your humanity. About your human vessel. Your very being. You. Your body. You know, Romans 12 tells us to present our bodies. And either we present our bodies to follow the course of this age and to use the example to get on the train car with all your friends. Seems so hopeful. No, we're on a different kind of track. We're here to get our friends off the train. Get them into the church life. It requires a certain kind of humanity, a certain kind of conduct, a certain kind of character in our being to be this kind of person. I'd like to ask you, who can stand against the tide, the current of this age? Who has that kind of strength and that kind of power? When I was in high school, I lived near a river. It was called the Kings River. It flowed through my backyard. We could go out my back door. We had a rope hanging from a tree. We could swing and Jump in the river. Well, I was upstream one day. I was up the river, closer to town. And while I was walking on the side of the river with, with one of my friends, I witnessed something. I witnessed a young family sitting on, this, on the beach there, and the little children were in an inner tube floating down the river. And right in front of me, I watched this little girl flip over in her inner tube and not knowing how to swim, was being swept away by the current. The father ran quickly into the river, but this, the floor of the river had changed. And within two steps, he was in already over his head. He grabbed his girl and he's standing on the bottom of the river. The water is up to here. And he's holding her out of the water. And the current was very strong. What did I do? Well, I ran into the river and I got him. I got him out of the tide. I got him out of the current. Tonight, I'd like to get you all out of the current. Let's read through this outline, okay? And we won't take a lot of time. 
But I'd like to tell you something, that in this age, at this time, the Lord is building His church. He really is. You might be young and think, well, that's for the big people, that's for the old people. But I'm here to tell you, no, 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 no. This is for the young people. You have to know what God is doing right now. Otherwise, you could become deceived and fooled by the enemy, and then you sell out your future for a lost dream, a wasted dream. Last week I heard Brother Peter, in one of the questions, answered it by speaking about losing our birthright. That's a serious thing, to sell your birthright. This expression comes from the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother. The birthright was his. The birthright represents the portion that the firstborn sons get. In God's economy, they get the kingship. They get to reign with Christ. They get the priesthood. They get to go into God's presence and worship Him. And they get a double portion of the land. They get a lot of property, which means they get the highest enjoyment of Christ. This is our birthright. But Esau despised his birthright. He didn't appreciate it. He didn't love it. One day, coming back from hunting, he was very hungry. He had been out hunting all day, and Jacob, his brother, the younger brother, was cooking up some nice soup, a stew. And when his brother saw him, he said, give me some of your stew. And Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright. Esau said, well, what's the use of my birthright? If I'm going to die, I'm dying, I'm starving, I'm starving. He wasn't going to die. Sometimes we think like this. We sell out the kingdom. Give up the church life. Give up for some immediate kind of satisfaction. So what he did, Esau struck the deal. He said, you give me the soup. I'll sell you the birthright. You can have my birthright. And then the Bible says he despised his birthright. Young people never despise the church life. Church life is a real birthright. But in the context of others, some sold out their birthright because of immorality. Reuben... Jacob's oldest son was named Reuben. And later in life, when Reuben was full grown, and he had an affair, a sexual affair, with one of Jacob's concubines. He had sex with her. The, you know, it's a story that's only one or two verses long. And it says this. And Jacob heard of it. Jacob found out. You know what? People always find out. You think you can keep it a secret. If God loves you, Jacob will find out. Because Jacob found out. And then there's no mention of it. It's not like Jacob said anything. Jacob did not do anything different. He didn't say anything. For years, years later, 
And now it's time for Jacob to give out the birthright and bless his sons. The first son that comes in is Joseph. He gives Joseph a real blessing. Then comes Reuben. Reuben, the firstborn. He's the big brother. He's the, the oldest brother in the family. And Jacob begins to talk to him. And he says, you know what, Reuben? You are my firstborn son. All my hope was in you. All my strength was in you. You are my vitality, my strength, my vigor. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. But you will not get the blessing. You went up to your father's bed and defiled it. And then it's like Jacob is not speaking to Reuben any longer. It's like he's speaking to the angels. He went up to my bed. Oh, Centuries later, Moses, you know what Moses is doing? This is in Deuteronomy. Moses is blessing just like, just like uh, Jacob did. And he comes to Reuben and he says, may Reuben, not, may Reuben live and not die. Reuben was in danger of dying out. Serious. But when we talk about giving up the birthright, it's a serious thing. But I don't want to talk about the birthright tonight. I'd like to talk about this. So let's read through the outline, okay? Young people needing the humanity of Jesus. Tonight I'd like to focus all of the fellowship on your vessel. Your vessel is your body, yourself, you. It's the container where all of, the, of you exists. You exist in time and you exist within your human vessel. You're a person with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Wherever your body goes, that's where you go. Point one says, from the types in the scriptures, we can see the need of a proper humanity for the church life. The type is this. In the Old Testament, when the Lord was building the tabernacle, there was the ark, the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant went into the Holy of Holies, it was made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Acacia wood, wood is always a type of humanity. Acacia wood speaks of God, of the Lord Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. And this is overlaid with gold. That means our human life is overlaid with divinity. There's mingling of divinity and humanity. That's the Lord's testimony. That's the ark. And mainly it speaks of Christ. But then it's expanded. The tabernacle was made in the same way. It had standing boards. The boards were about as tall as this room. Ten cubits tall. Acacia wood. Overlaid with gold. This speaks of the church. While the ark speaks of Christ, the tabernacle speaks of the church. And it impresses us that for the Lord to have his testimony on the earth, he needs people with a kind of humanity that could bear the Lord's testimony. Not fallen humanity. Uplifted humanity. The Lord's humanity was fine and balanced and perfect. It was sweet. It was lovely. When the Lord was walking on the earth, He was a real man. He was a real man. He had feelings, you know. 
He could heal the sick. He could be moved with compassion. He could feel what other people were suffering. He could enter into the anguish of human life and feel it. Can you? Can you walk on your campus and feel the, the sufferings of others? Today we live in a society that's very self-centered. It's all about me and my, my comfort and my happiness. But suppose there's someone that can walk on a campus and you can feel what the suffering of, of all those people. Well, they look so cool. They look so together. They seem like they've got it all together. They seem so happy. She's hanging on her boyfriend's arm and it looks so nice and they're kissing in the hallway. They seem so happy. But can you, can you look past that and understand the anguish that is going on, the suffering, the loneliness? The Lord could do that. And because we have the Lord living in us, we can do that. This is humanity. And then the Lord was moved with compassion. He saw the people, they had the crowds, they had been following him. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're aimless. They don't know where they're going. They're getting on the cattle car. They don't know it. They're dying. They're about to destroy their lives. They're without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. This is what the Lord saw. He was a real man. And the Lord's church should be exactly the same as him. The ark was this way, and the tabernacle was this way. The ark is a type of Christ. The tabernacle is a type of the church. He wants us to be exactly like that. He doesn't want us to become part of this tide. He wants us to be the only sane voice in the room. He wants us to know what's going on and not be fooled, to be deceived. Point A says, we've seen that the ark and the tabernacle signify Christ and the church. The ark is Christ and the tabernacle is the enlargement of the ark. Just as the tabernacle is the enlargement of the ark, so the church is the increase and enlargement of Christ. The boards of the tabernacle were also made with the same material and in the same way as the ark, acacia wood, overlaid with gold. <clears throat> the Bible talks about the boards were standing boards. You see these, these panels? These panels are standing. They're not vertical. I mean, horizontal, they're vertical. They're standing. That's exactly how the tabernacle was. A number of years ago, we took a blending trip with our young people to the East Coast. We were in New York, in New Jersey, and in Philadelphia. And when we were traveling outside of Philadelphia, we came to a little, bit, a little town that had a life-size display of the ark, uh, uh, I mean, of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And you could go in and see this thing. They had the, the standing boards. They had everything laid out. And it was just like this. <clears throat> one and a half cubits is about this, this much. And one and a half cubits, there was 48 boards. Went around. They were standing boards. It's very interesting that they are standing boards. They're not laying down boards. They're not a pile of boards. They're boards standing up. It matters if we can stand up. Can we stand? In warfare, it's always a question of standing. As soon as you get knocked down, you're dead. 
And so the winner is the one who can stand. The Lord wants to put something in every one of us so that wherever we go to school, whatever we're facing, we can stand up for Him. We can stand for the testimony. We will not be knocked down or carried along by the current of the age like a piece of driftwood, but rather we will be a standing board. <clears throat> Look at Roman 2. Satan's main target today is the young people. Do you realize that you have a bullseye on your back? Satan's target is the young people. Not, not my generation, not me. You. This is why I have a burden to come here tonight to talk to you. Satan wants to destroy the young people. <clears throat> Satan's main target today is the young people. How does he do it? How does he attack us? He injects all his evil, satanic, devilish concepts and ideas into the young and fresh mentality of the young generation. What is Satan's attack? Is to inject concepts. Concepts. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> this example may cause a reaction. I hope you'll forgive me. Today there's a very powerful concept floating around in society today that makes homosexuality normal. All the teachers, all the media, the politicians, it's a movement. It's a movement with a concept. It's trying to make something that is very abominable before God normal. It's trying to say, no, no, they were born that way. They can't help it. Oh, Brother Tom, you, you're a hater. You're a homophobe. If you say anything bad about homosexuality, you're... Well, then, if we don't believe the Bible, then what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have nothing left. <clears throat> this is a concept. I've been in young people's meetings, young people's conferences. They turned in a question. Why does God hate gay people? I mentioned this in Irvine. Why does God hate gay people? Who said God hates gay people? For God so loved the world. When Paul went to Corinth, he preached the gospel to the, to the homosexuals. And they got saved. And they got healed. They got recovered. They came into the church life. You can read this in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's not about hating. We don't hate anybody. We don't. We hate sin. We hate Satan. We hate the world. But we don't hate people. Never. There's a concept today that there's no such thing as sin. There's moral relativism. And that means it might be sin to you, but it's not sin to me. 
oh sure, I can have sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, and and uh, there's no problem. It's not not sinful. Nothing wrong. The young brother, dear brother, asked me this question. He says, "Is it wrong to have sex with your girlfriend if you really love her? Is that fornication? Do you really love her?" This is the concept. The concept is nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. But what does the Bible say? Let marriage be held in honor and the bed undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Are you going to risk that? Based on a social concept today that makes it all okay, they pass out condoms at school, they teach you sex, sex education to make it normal, to make it lovely and precious. These are the concepts and the movements in today's young people that is designed by Satan to ruin humanity, to destroy God's building. Suppose there's no boards that are 10 cubits high. We got a few that are four four cubits high, none that are ten. You can't build the tabernacle. There's no humanity. There's no wood. There's no material. The Lord needs material. We are the material. Right? We are the standing boards. <clears throat> so I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. You have to see this. And for the Lord's purpose... For the sanctity of your human body, you have to preserve your vessel in sanctification and honor for God's purpose. <clears throat> Point A says, the young brothers and sisters in the church life must be clear that the source of all the damage in our mentality is Satan. The young people in the church must repudiate the concepts which they have held in the past. You hold this kind of thought. I don't, I don't think you should go around preaching to people, talking to people like I am to you. You don't need to do that. But you need to understand this. And you need to have a fresh mind, a clear mind, a sober mind, and not be carried along by the movements of today. Well, <clears throat> try and keep moving, huh? Point B. The first issue of this kind of mental damage is fornication. Last week, I know Brother Peter spoke a little bit about fornication, and some maybe were not clear <clears throat> what fornication is. Fornication is to have a sexual relationship with somebody that you're not married to. You're not married. It's fornication. It's to... Participate in immoral activity. Even, even you're married. It's called adultery. But it's also called fornication. The television shows, the movies, the music, everything is promoting fornication. Do you realize that no one talks about the anguish, the devastation, the tears, 
the sadness that results. No one talks about that. No one promotes that. That's the part that you don't see. I do. Young brother came to me. He was in love with a sister. And then he, he confessed to me that he had been involved in, in a moral kind of relationship with his sister. He had defiled her. He ruined her. I said, brother, how could you do that? How could you do that to your sister? Do you think there's no judgment? Do you think, you think this is okay? How could you do that? Maybe I was mad. I don't think I was mad. But I was disgusted. You can't do that. Destroy another life. Now this person, this dear sister in the Lord, maybe she holds some responsibility for sure. But one day she's going to get married. And during her courtship, she's probably going to have to tell her future husband that he's not first. Someone else was first. Just, just think about that for a minute. Would you like to have that conversation with the man of your dreams? Sorry, honey. There was others. I've been in fellowship with young couples. And when that day comes, that conversation takes place. Don't know what's going to happen. The whole thing can be over right then. It's done. He goes, I thought, I thought you were pure. I thought you were a virgin. I thought you were... I didn't know you were like that. I didn't know you were like that. I hope you all can understand. <clears throat> everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. It's normal. It's normal. Everybody's doing it. Let me tell you, no, no, not everybody's doing it. You're not doing it. issue of this kind of mental damage. This is mental damage that makes that okay. There's, there's something really seriously wrong to make that okay. That's not okay. It'll never be okay. It doesn't, ha doesn't matter what's normal according to the world. That will never be okay. Look at one. One says, nothing damages our humanity like fornication. This is a kind of sin that destroys your body, your physical human body. It has a, a real effect. <clears throat> Any act we commit is outside our body, but fornication damages our body. Because the church life is a meeting life, a communal life, we have considerable contact with one another. So, brothers and sisters, we have to maintain a proper 
relationship to brothers to treat the sisters like sisters. When Paul was talking to his young co-worker, Timothy, he said, let no one despise your youth. No one despise your youth. Do not give anyone the opportunity to despise you because of your conduct, especially in a number of matters, in word, how you speak, in conduct, how you behave, in faith, in love, and then he says, in purity. This has to do with relationships with the opposite sex, or nowadays, with the same sex. I hope not one of you would ever, ever entertain the thought that maybe you are gay. I would like to make a clear announcement to you. No, you are not. You not no, you're not. You never will be. God made you male. He made you female. There's no such thing as anything different from that. That's what the Bible says. And this is what we firmly believe. Never open your mind to that thought. I hope you won't be bothered or offended by me. But Satan's strategy is to open your mind to this concept. Point C. Look at there's another issue. The second issue of this devilish concept and concepts indoctrinated into the minds of the young people is to commit suicide. <clears throat> Never in the history of human life has there been more suicides than there is nowadays, especially among young people. And I'd just like to, again, try to affect your mind. Young people, people in general, often think that suicide is a solution. It's a way to get out of the pain. It's a way to resolve whatever issue you're struggling with. You're being bullied. People commit suicide. Your girlfriend breaks up with them. He commits suicide. They get caught doing something terrible. They commit suicide. They think it's an escape. Young people should never, never consider suicide an escape. It is not an escape. You wake up in Hades with the exact same problem. <laughs> Nothing is resolved. The anguish is still there. The misery is there. The pain is there. The only thing that's not there is a chance to be recovered. It's the most hopeless thing. Satan would love all of us commit suicide. It save him a little trouble. You should never think like this. If you ever have this kind of thought, you should seek, seek out some, some real help. The reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit tonight is because, you know, in the high school sisters conference a few weeks back, the brothers handled some questions at the end of the conference. We got to see some of the questions. These are questions that the brothers did not answer. Some of them were talking about suicide. Oh.
This is real evil, evil thing. Especially the thought that suicide is a solution. It is not a solution. And you know what people say? At the funerals. It's so terrible. At the funerals. These poor people, these suffering people that are being laid to rest, and one by one people get up and they say things like this. Oh, he's in a better place. This is a common concept. Everybody goes to heaven. Michael Jackson's in a better place. <laughs> really? Do you really believe that? What does the Bible say? Don't believe the lie. Don't get on the car. Satan has indoctrinated the mentality of the young people with the concept of suicide. We all must pray and stand against such subtlety of the enemy. A number of years ago, there was a hit hard rock song. The Suicide Solution was the title. That's going to date me. It goes back maybe 15 years. But you get the young people with their, their plugs in their ears and they're listening to the suicide solution. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to be thinking. Thoughts. Satan tempts people to sin. He also tempts people to die. Satan's whole purpose is to damage humanity so that man cannot be used for God's purpose. This is all he wants to do is he wants to destroy humanity, you and me, so that we could not be useful to God for his purpose. <clears throat> the third issue of the indoctrination of devilish concepts is mental illness. Paul says that God has given us a spirit of a sound mind. We must be exceedingly healthy in our thinking, concepts, and ideas. And we need to have a sound mind. Problems in the heart are often the cause of mental problems. If a person's mind is under attack by the enemy, this is an indication that his heart is wrong in some way. Young people, I just... This is kind of heavy. Sorry. But I think it's healthy heavy. I hope... Okay, let's go on to Romans 3. We are in exactly the same kind of situation today as was the early church. At that time, the church was degraded and society was ruined. It is clear that it is the same today. You know, during the time of the Roman Empire, morality was horrible. It was a filthy, filthy kind of culture. And we are racing toward that same kind of culture Europe is ahead of us, but we're not far behind. Everything goes. It's like we live in a corporate global Sodom. What should we do? Where is it safe? Sometimes I wonder, you know, when I'm talking to the parents, where is it safe to raise children? What schools is it going to be safe to send your children to? Where can you go? There's nowhere to go. It's all the same. It's the same. Young people, I'm especially burdened for all of you because, not like me, you're right in the middle of all of this. 
I feel so bad. Sometimes I wish there was a way to preserve and to keep you, keep you safe. It's like a parent sending their child off to school for the first time. A parent wants to keep their children safe. How can we keep all of you safe? We'd love to spare you the concepts, the damage. We're in the same kind of situation as when the Bible was written, when the New Testament was written. Do you know in Thessalonica, the worship, the cult worship that they have, that they practiced as a as a people, involved prostitutes, male prostitutes, female prostitutes. That was part of their worship. And then these people got saved. They really got saved. But they had been involved in dark, dark immorality. Paul gave them a word. He said this. He said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from fornication. Abstain is a strong word. That means don't. Don't do that. That each one of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Your vessel needs to be maintained, preserved, sanctification before God and in an honorable condition before men. We're proper. We're pure. We're innocent. We're like that. Hey, we must all realize that we are in a situation that requires the Lord's humanity for His recovery. There must be a group of people to stand against the tide of this age. How about us? How about us? Let's, let's be those people. There must be a group of people. The proper cure for this age. I love this point. The proper dose for this generation. You know what the medicine is? The dose? The cure? It is the humanity that comes from the man Jesus. The proper humanity is the only healing power for today's generation. Imagine walking onto your campus as a real God man, having the humanity of the Lord Jesus. You're not carried by the tide. You're not part of the tide. But rather, you're there as a light. <clears throat> as a shining testimony. Philippians 2. 15. That you would be blameless and guileless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine as luminaries in the world. You could be blameless and guileless children of God in the midst. Right in the midst. And while it's dark, among whom you shine, we're all together different. We love the Lord. We love the church. We're for the church. We're for the Lord. Point one says the Lord will use the church as a remedy for today's crooked and perverse generation. The remedy for such a generation is a church with the proper humanity. If the young people in the church take the humanity of Jesus, they will be the proper remedy for this generation. I want to draw something for you on the board. 
and then I'm going to stop. Our human life can be divided into three sections of 25 years. This is God's way, His wisdom, it's His, His design. Here we're zero, here we're 25, here we're 50. Sorry, I made it out of proportion, 75. Okay, the first 25 years of someone's life is a stage of education. This is the stage where you are accumulating knowledge, spiritual and physical, uh, academic. You're accumulating. You know, children, when they are born, they are like little sponges. They're absorbing everything. Everything they see, everything they hear is getting into them. And they're accumulating a wealth of knowledge and learning and observations. It constitutes them. It makes them what they are. This stage of education is a critical stage. It needs all 25 years. You can't cut this short. Then based upon what you learned in this stage, you go on to this stage, and this is the stage of perfecting. This is the stage where what you learned in this stage gets constituted into your being. It gets worked into you. It becomes you. That's what makes you you. It's not just history and math and science. It's not that. It's, it's everything. How to relate to your brothers and sisters. How to relate to your parents. You're learning. You're learning. You're learning how to fellowship, how to pray, how to contact the Lord. You're learning, you're learning. Spiritually, psychologically, physically, a lot of learning going on. Of course, these are the years when you go through high school and college and, and even the full-time training. After you finish that, this is the hard section. Let me tell you, this is the hardest section of your life. Trainees here don't want to hear this because they're right there. They're about to launch into the most difficult stage of human life, and it's because of this. Marriage, children, and career. You have to manage all at the same time. Do you know how to raise a family? Do you know how to... Oh, you physically, you, you're old enough to have a baby, but do you know how to raise a family? Do you know how to have a long-term relationship that lasts your whole life with one person? All of these things are in, will apply intense pressure on you. If you don't have a good base, let me draw another kind of diagram. <clears throat> it goes like this. This is the stage of education. Based upon this, you can go to marriage and so forth. The third stage, after you have passed through some difficulties, some learning, some sufferings, you come to a stage of usefulness. <laughs> a little ways off, huh? 
That's how it works. This is how it works. Now, let's let's play with this a little bit. Suppose you fall in love at 16. And because of your improper conduct, you become pregnant. Or you become a dad. You know, uh, this happens in the church life. Sadly, way too many times. So, but I love him. Oh, I love him. I love her. I love her. Enough to ruin her life? Come on. Are you serious? And so now you don't have the base. Your education is cut short. And now you have to take on the big responsibility. And you're not, you're not nearly prepared. You're just absolutely not prepared for it. You're not old enough. You're not mature enough. You don't have a base. You have no base. This thing becomes very, very difficult. And you could forget about usefulness because there's no time left. It'll take, it'll take the rest of your life to get through that. You understand? You cut this short. You want you, you just oh you just have to be married so quick. So okay, you get married here. All you do is extend this section that much longer with a base that's so much smaller. I would encourage all of the young people stay the course. Stay in school. Do well in your classes. Be the top student. Be the best students. Respect the teachers. Follow the, rule, the rules. And get a good education. This will prepare your humanity for all of the responsibilities that are coming right down in front of you, down the road. We saw young people, they had to cut their education short because they were foolish. And then they entered into a very difficult marriage situation that became a great suffering to them. And eventually, the marriage broke. Then they got remarried. Maybe that one broke too. I'm not saying it has to be that way. This is life. This is your whole life right here. Let's think about it. We pray, we sang tonight, may a clear, controlling vision capture our whole heart. It's your life. How will you spend it? What kind of a base are you going to lay? Brothers, don't, don't stop your schooling. you got to get a college education. You have to. But don't make education your God. Don't make it an idol. Then at the right time, the Lord will bring the best brother or the best sister to you. You have to leave this with the Lord. You have to lock up your heart. Say, no, I'm not going to risk my life.
for something that could damage me. In Judges chapter 5, there's two verses, one's verse 15. It says, in the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolutions of heart. In verse 16, it says, in the division, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of hearts. The great resolution speaks of a great decision. A decision. There needs to be a decision. Someone has to decide. What are you going to decide? Are you going to leave this up in the air and maybe not decide, just see how it's going to play out? Or will you make a decision? Tonight, I want you to make a decision. How are you going to spend your life? And then it says, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. That means they had a plan. They had a plan. A great plan. A great decision needs a great plan. So tonight, I'd like to propose great decision with a great plan. Amen. Let's enjoy the church life. Amen. Let us come together and sing and enjoy and read the word. Let's consecrate ourselves to the Lord, give ourselves to Him. This is our great resolution, our great decision. And then our plan is to dive into the church life, meet with the saints, get into the homes, to serve in the church, to preach the gospel in our campuses. This is our resolution. This is our searching. This is our future. Tonight I hope we all could have a time to pray. Maybe we should pray right now. Amen. Lord, I give my life to you. Amen. Preserve me for your interest. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen. We give you our life. Amen. We give you especially our teenage years. Amen. May none of us be caught by the evil one. Amen. Lord, may every one of us be gained for your purpose. Amen. Give ourselves to you afresh. Amen. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing that song again, What Things Were Gained to Me. I don't think we need to look it up, do you? Okay. Let's sing. Set ourselves apart from this evil age and just turn to the Lord and follow Him. Amen. Amen. I enjoy that we must not board the train of the world, for no matter how bright it seems, there is no future. Amen. I want to encourage all of the young people to to appreciate your birthright. Appreciate Christ as your birthright. Don't be like Esau and sell your birthright for that temporary satisfaction. And just keep on pulling through and keep on um, staying on the course. Amen. I enjoy that we need to set ourselves from the world. You know, we need to, we need to set our lives just for the Lord's purpose. Amen.
encourage you guys that everything you see at school, everything that you hear at school is not normal. And the only thing that's normal is the church life. Amen. Amen. I learned that 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 young people are Satan's main target, and that that his the three ways the three main ways he injects evil into them is through uh, fornication, suicide, and mental illness. seem so 
we just we just think it's so you know so enjoyable, but it it doesn't it doesn't last. Right. And the only thing that lasts is Christ. Amen. So yeah, just really we need, we just really need to be open to the Lord more than we are open to to everything else. Amen. And that. You don't have to believe the lie. When you hear everybody's doing it, it's not true. You're not doing it. I enjoy living out positive outcome in the world. The only positive outcome is in the church But I have to say, praise the Lord, my husband is my first boyfriend and his only man in my life. And I have to testify, this helped me so much. Because every time he came to me, he's like, wow, I cannot believe it. You know, you are my first. And, you know, this is, this is wonderful, sisters. We can hold on and take and be patient with God, because God will give us the best. And I have to testify, because of this, we have a real wonderful foundation in our life. So, may we all be sober. Amen. Amen. Amen.